welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi, everyone. I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. If I live two more days, no, another week will be 37 years, but in the meantime, it's 36 years, 11 months, and about three weeks. <laughs> and... um for everyone's knowledge, I do not have the longest sobriety in the fellowship. Two women do. I might be the man with the longest sobriety that I know of. Maybe someone else is around, but uh, but there are two women who have uh, about a year more than I do who are still alive and in the program. It's just a little historical note. And uh, there are quite a few people who are right behind me in years. One of them is on our program now, who has at least 35 years. Um, So we have quite a few people with 35 years and more sobriety now. At least seven, I would imagine, are close to it. Okay, Um, I'm going to have a little difficulty, I was saying, speaking uh, today because um, I've had some spiritual awakenings this afternoon that have kept coming, and I'm having trouble connecting out of them. Uh, But um, one of them just happened about an hour ago. I live in a retirement center, and they had an entertainer uh, doing singing, impersonating. The guy must have been 80 years old. (laughs) Up there on the stage. And he was as professional as you can imagine. Right off Broadway. See, he didn't know he was probably in his 80s. Being in his 80s or close to it, whatever he was, his essence was to entertain other people. That was his essence. And when when I saw him up there, excuse me, I realized that's my essence. My essence is just to give away freely what has been so freely given to me. And so I'm not 81, only in body. I am just a being that is here for one purpose, to pass a message that was passed to me and that has proven 
life-changing for me and so many other people. And eventually, you get to see this program has nothing at all to do with lust. Lust is just a key to open a door. Just a key that for 24 hours, we don't sexually act out and we stay as lust-free as someone is capable of being at that day. And then our essence has a chance, our beingness, our real self has a chance of being who we've always been, but never knew it. Today we're to talk about the eighth and ninth step. And by the way, the other revelation happened about an hour before this one, and I was in the shower getting ready for this. And the shower used to be where I acted out among many other hundreds of places. <laughs> but it was one of the places. And uh, today, the shower is where I have some of my most spontaneous awakenings. Same furniture, different results. Amazing what happens in this fellowship. So the most dangerous place for me has now become a place of awakenings. And in my awakening this afternoon came the realization for me that revelations never stop, as I was sharing before. We call them awakenings in the program. Unlike many religious concepts that we've been programmed for, the 12-step program transcends any type of terminal revelation. It never ends. One revelation, one awakening. And I looked up the word revelation a little while ago. How we become aware of God talking to us. What is revealed to us. And the eighth and ninth step is one of these important spots in our recovery that permit the general theme. God, I sound so serious right now. Let me loosen up a little. Hey, this is fun. Let's not get too heavy here. So let's get back to why the hell we're having this workshop. Why are we having it? To help 
not to do the steps because no one could do the steps for you. No one. Don't let anyone fool you. The steps are only what you do with yourself asking for help to do it, especially where you don't understand it. But it's absolutely told you how to do it in the first 164 pages of the AA book. And then many people who were contributed to um, our step books for SA, step into action books. Much of that material is helping along with that first 164 pages from the AA book. This AA book is our basic text. Everything else is on top of it. And what are why do these steps? Because the steps cannot stop you from acting. No, the steps cannot get you to get sober, but the steps can help you stay sober. If you expect the steps to get you sober, I wish you luck. Because how are you going to do your steps if two hours before you just masturbated or you just watched pornography? No, first, you have to stop for 24 hours. No matter what it takes for 24 hours, whatever you're doing to put the plug in the jug, and then you can do the steps that keep you sober. And how do the steps keep us sober? By helping us with this magic word of being comfortable. It's called serenity. If we are uncomfortable, if we have discomfort, we must default back to our addiction. And when we default to one addiction, it usually brings us to the other addiction. And for us, our default is lust. No matter what, if you're uncomfortable, you're automatically going to default to lust. So the program is about giving us comfort. Now, how do we get comfort through the steps? Through beating down with the steps, the ego. The ego. What is the ego? My thoughts. If we rely on our thoughts, I don't have enough, I need more, you don't like me enough, nobody likes me, my parents harm me, and therefore it can never be okay, so therefore I'm always upset, and therefore I need my lust. 
It's all thought, all ego. The steps help us with this word of humility. It deflates our ego. Each step deflates our ego more and more. The first one is the most magnificent deflation. I'm powerless. <laughs> no matter what I do, I can't stop. No matter what I do, I cannot stop. That's a real humbling awakening. And each step knocks that ego a little more down, little more down, little more down. And then lo and behold, we get the ones that I don't like, eight and nine. I just don't like eight and nine. It's like going to the dentist for me. And by the way, I'm so old when you had a filling put in back in the 40s and the, they didn't numb you. And so I just look at a dentist and I'm in shock. <laughs> I don't like eight or nine. But those are the steps that kind of help nail the ego down almost to being paralyzed, which is wonderful. By the way, as we talked last week, A very humbling steps is six and seven. This it's saying, oh, you think you're a big shot? You did your fourth step? You've done all your defects. You know all this stuff. Now you, you tell it to God, yourself, another human being. You got it, man. It's over. No, it says... Now, even with all your knowledge of all your character defects, you can't change it. You cannot make your character defects go away. Man, what kind of dead-end street is that? It's a sixth and seventh step says we humbly ask God to remove whatever your concept of God is. One of the best concepts for me is I'm not it. I cannot make my resentments and my angers and my jealousy and my envy go away. I, what a humiliating, <laughs> humbling concept. You finally have to say, God, you take it. Now, does God come down with the tweezers and pluck them off of you? Well, maybe your God does. My God hadn't done that that way. And it would have to be a mighty big tweezers to pluck my character defects. 
How's it done? You do enough eight and nine. And lo and behold, you're in the realm of Pavlov. In behavior conditioning. If you hate doing amends as much as I do, somehow my little brain clicks. Harvey, if you say to your wife what you want to say right now, you're going to have to make a damn amend before you go to bed tonight. You you better pray, God, keep my mouth shut. Because you know you hate to make amends. Especially with a formula. I was wrong, Nancy. I want to make an amend. I was wrong for using that tone of voice with you. And I ask your forgiveness. Oh, my God. It's like pulling teeth. I don't like doing it. Lo and behold, it's a way God plucks some of these character tweak, tweaks them. It tweaks my character deep through the eighth and ninth step. Now, it's interesting. Um, I had two aspects. Uh, I know I don't like these steps. So I felt quite empty about what will I share. And then my ego immediately shows up. You better study. You better take out all the texts. You better become an expert. And I could hear through mindfulness my ego in action. And other than browsing a few things, I it took everything I had not to write anything down, not to really study it. Because then you're just going to get a lecture from me. And it's not from me, it's from my ego. Rather than my experience, strength, and hope. And what is one of the main things that show up? That amends, and Roy talks about his step eight and a half. There's nothing really crazy about the half, but he was right on target. What comes before all this? The part that's even tougher than the amends, the pulling the teeth, forgiving. How do we make an amend from the heart without forgiving the person? We get stuck in that second column of the fourth step of what they did to me. We get stuck in it. And we justify why we can't forgive them. Well, if you can't forgive them, how the hell do you make an amend to them?
Not easy. You know, my sponsor, Cherry, would say, we the most tolerated people, we sex addicts, he was referring to alcoholics, though. We, the most tolerated of all people, become the most intolerant. How dare my wife say that to me? How dare my mother said that to me? How dare my boss treated me that way? We become intolerant. When we're intolerant, it's hard to forgive. You don't have to forget, but the forgiving. And the forgetting is not a big deal because from everything I remember, I can grow from. That's a spiritual awakening. I saw this old man up on stage doing this unbelievable good performance. And I had an awakening from anything. If I am in a fit spiritual condition, or I could have sat there and said, how come my parents never took me anywhere? How come I have to watch this now when no one took care of me when I was younger? We could see the same thing and react totally different. But as we get to the 11th step, We'll talk more about seeing the thoughts rather than participating in them. So the beginning is our forgiving. I want to use my example of my life because I have nothing else to share with you. And we we don't have the stories enough time for me to elaborate too much. But as you all know, I was about 14 and my mother took a big bread knife and stabbed me. And um, that's my second column. My third column for my fourth step was how What it affected me, my self-esteem, my sex relations, my security, etc. But the fourth column, where you base potentially a lot of your eighth and ninth step on, I was a little kid. She stabbed me. I wasn't hitting her. I wasn't beating her. I wasn't having a knife in my hand, the woman stabbed me. What the heck could be my fourth column? Real simple. I poisoned my family's mind against my mother. By telling them the story, 
poisoned my wife's mind against my mother. That's my fourth column. How can I forgive something like that? Well, when I was drinking and having all this promiscuity and totally drunk between the lust and the booze, especially the lust, one day one of my teenage sons got me annoyed and I got angry at him. I was about to beat on him. He ran away from me. And he closed the door of his room, locked it. I kept a hole in the door. He jumped out the window to get away from me. Luckily, it was the first story. He's now about 55, by the way. A lot of times passed since then. So where does the forgiveness come? To my mother. Hey, mom. Sure, I forgave you. Just like I hope my children have forgiven me for what I've done. Because my mother did say that to me many years into my recovery. She had never in my entire adult life ever ever alluded to it, mentioned it, and I got into sobriety and called her one day and said, Mom, I just want to tell you I love you. And she said for the first time ever, but how could you when with what I did to you as a child? And I was able to say, honey, I forgave you just like hopefully my children have forgiven me. My mother was a very sick woman. Looking back at it, she probably had borderline personality disorder. Well, I'm a very sick man. I, the most tolerated, can become the most intolerant. So step eight and nine is another place to let go of what the ego does not want me to let go of. Now, very interesting. It looks like there are two steps, eight and nine, but they're not. There are three steps. Eight A and eight. 8B, they are not connected. 8A said, made a list. 8B says, and became willing to make the event. So the first part of the eighth and ninth step has nothing to do with making an amend or even being willing to make it. It just has to do with making a list of who you've harmed, period. 
It's so simple, like everything else in the program, that most people can't get it. Too simple. So you make a list. You know, I was taught an approach that has always worked for me. On top of the page, when I write anything, I write the words, God, you write this for me. Okay? Whatever that means. But for me, it means, Harvey, if you write it, you're going to screw it up. Your ego is going to get into the picture. Let it go. Don't write it as you. This you is really not your ego anyway. It's just your ego is merely thoughts based on the past. So you write a list. No big deal. Now, On my list was my wife's name. I I could not make an amend to her for being so promiscuous. I'm just forgiving her venereal diseases. Time and again, I couldn't do it. But that's where the second of the eight comes in. Eight B. I started to pray. Now there's an interesting prayer I learned over the years when I'm not willing. God, help me be willing to be willing to make the amend. If I can't say that, I'll say, God, help me be willing to be willing to be willing. Sometimes I have to take it back six willings or so to finally be able to say, let me be willing to be willing to be willing to make the amend to my wife. Why, looking back at it, does that work? Because I was honest with myself. I wasn't willing to do it. See, we so often lie to ourselves. One of the biggest lies in this fellowship that I have seen is I want to stop lusting. Hardly anyone in this fellowship, very few people really want to stop lusting. They want to stop acting out. They want the consequences to stop. But they really cannot see their life without their sexual fantasies or how they're going to go to bed at night without some sexual fantasy or someone showing up in their bed with them who's in their mind. Most people do not want to stop Lusting. So simple. And the proof is in the pudding. 
The turnover in this fellowship is tremendous. This, as you all know, you know, I repeat these things over and over. Step one does not mention sex. It only mentions lust. I'm allergic to lust. I'm not allergic to sex, or I wouldn't still be able to have sex with my wife. So I can't be allergic to sex. I'm allergic to what goes on if I let it happen without using my tools in my head if I'm having sex with my wife. That's the lust, not the sex. Now, as you know, I say things that are not popular things to say a lot of times. Because this fellowship has developed into a fellowship that has automatically changed the step one. Automatically. Where people do not see the word lust. They just see the word sexually acting out, masturbation, pornography, whatever it is. So the self-honesty is for me to say, no, I'm not willing. I'm not willing to make that amend yet. Somehow, once I do that, I was able to make my amend to my wife. That first year without great details, but to make it to her. And she said, no, I cannot forgive you. No. And she stormed out of the room, closed the door, shut behind her. And I had one of the biggest spiritual experiences I ever had in this fellowship. She had just said, no, I can't forgive you. I was free. I made my amends. I was so free. I was free. It had nothing to do with her reaction. I was truly wrong and asked her forgiveness. About a year later, my son was in a halfway house in Wisconsin and we went to a workshop in Hazelden, couple workshop. And we were driving to visit my son And out of nowhere, my wife said, you never made an amend to me for what you did. And I knew I had. But I made the amend again, and she was fine. None of that, no, I won't forgive you, etc. She wasn't ready to hear it. But I already had the experience. 
See, these steps aren't for other people. This is not a program for codependency. This is a program to clean our side of the street. Wow. Time went fast. Sorry, I I couldn't find street. (laughs) Sorry follows me wherever I go. Okay. Um, The question is, are we suggesting that we make amends or forgive everyone? Why then does it say for others we make amends wherever possible except when it may hurt or injure them? Does this not contradict? It's so interesting. I get these words about contradictions. Someone asked me just this past week about, isn't it contradictory to ask God's forgiveness? Isn't it saying he might not love us and he'll only love us if we ask for forgiveness? Uh, There are I don't see any of these these contradictions. Um, you know, let's, where in that question, can you ask it again for me? Are we suggesting that we make amends or forgive everyone? Why then does it say for others we make amends wherever possible, except when it may injure those? Where is there a contradiction there? Yeah, because I, in the first part of the question, it's talking about forgiveness. Which is what you were talking or, about. It's talking about amends and not harming people. We're going to talk about the importance of a sponsor before you make an amend and how you clearly write your amend down before you do it, hopefully and get it checked with your sponsor, but we'll talk about that next time. Uh, But the forgiveness and harming someone, I'm not getting the connection. So um, you're not going to make an amend directly to someone if it harms them. But we'll talk about living amends. You're always going to make amends if you're willing to. But some are not direct. Some are living amends. Just like you do to people who have died, you can't make direct amends to them. But forgiving everyone, oh, what a joyous experience. especially when we're holding resentments to people from hundreds of years ago who we don't even know, corrodes you inside. In my opinion, hatred, revenge, does nothing to the person you're aiming it at. But boy, can it destroy me. And so the question's got to come up, how do we forgive our abusers? How can we forgive our abusers? 
first of all, I'm going to say such a unpopular thing. None of this is real anymore. The abuse could have happened 30, 40, 50. My abuse, sexual abuse happened to me 60 years ago. No, 70 years ago. What about that? 70 years ago. It's now only a figment of my imagination and cellular memories. Cellular memories that many of us tend to get somehow, whatever that means. But none of it's real today. What is real today? that I got the Stockholm Syndrome, and I'll explain it, and I identify with the abuser, and I end up abusing others and myself. So what they're not doing to me, I do to me. And for those who have not checked out what the Stockholm syndrome is. It was a phenomenon that happened in Stockholm where bank robbers robbed a bank and the people stuck in the vault with them ended up, they ended up bonding with each other. We had it happen in America many years ago. The woman called Patty Hearst where she became a bank robber or Minuteman, or what, some kind of thing. But she identified with her kidnapper. She was from a wealthy family. And many of us ended up identifying with our abusers without knowing it and doing the same behavior that they did to us, we do to other people. Very involved phenomenon uh, it's uh, I don't go for some of this Freudian stuff but in some they used to call it in late 1800s so the um, uh, repetitive compose compo- someone help me competitive re- you uh, repeat the compulsion the obsession. You just keep repeating it. Repetition compulsion, that's what it's called. Repetition compulsion. So yeah, forgiveness is important for who? Me. For me. And people forget an amend is it for the other person. If it were then their reaction to it would mean something. It doesn't matter how they react. We've cleaned up our side of the street. We have hit our ego down bit by bit. My sponsor would say say the ego is like that Greek myth, the phoenix coming out of the ashes. Every day it would come out bigger than the day before. But he said in our 12-step program, 
Each day we get bigger tools and more tools to beat down the bigger ego that wakes up before we wake up in the morning. Next question. Okay, good. And just a reminder to try and keep the questions related to step eight to nine. Um, if possible, we can, towards the end of the day, if you have a question, we can we, we can move to other topics, but um, we're trying to stick as close to the topic as possible. So we'll start with uh, Tyron. Uh, go ahead, Tyron. Hey, Harvey. Um, so I am currently working step eight and nine with my sponsor, and um, you mentioned that you got to a point or you, you prayed until you got to a point where you could ask forgiveness and make amends to your wife within a year of working the program. But like, my question is, do you continue moving on with the other steps while you're making amends? I forgot. It's been a long time. I do amends all the time for my 10th step. We're going back almost uh, 37 years, and AA is going on 38 years. So um, uh, I think I really stopped with the eighth step and did my list, and it took me uh, weeks to track down people and to write them. Or to go, I used to um, uh, steal things, and I had to go to places I worked at and give back money and do things and um, just a whole lot. In the tenth step, I'll talk to you about an amend I had to make while that happened after I was in recovery to someone in my profession about making trouble for that person. Uh, but hopefully we'll talk about that in the 10th step. Um, next question. Okay, um, Mohammed. Uh, I'm Mohammed, recovering sexaholic. Um, my question is about the amends to my wife uh it's been now one year and a half that i didn't meet my wife so probably i'm going to meet her after uh two weeks so how can i differentiate when i'm like having sex with her and differentiating that from lust because i'm really having trouble with this and yeah this is the part like i'm having fear uh to to sleep with her and i cannot Imagine that after one year and with uh, repeated with relapsing repeatedly, uh, that I will sleep with her or dealing with her as my wife. Uh, yeah, thank you. That's the things. Are you saying you keep relapsing? Or I wasn't sure what you said. Sorry, uh, Muhammad. Wait. I made it so that he can't unmute afterwards. Let me just find him one second. Yes. Um, uh, yes. 
Are you continually relapsing? No, I'm I'm saying that I'm sober for it's been now three weeks or so, uh, but I'm I'm not having the willing to sleep with her because I'm because I'm having trouble with lust. This is what it comes to me. Yeah, well, just do whatever you're doing. This you're dealing with the first step, and you'll have time to work on your eighth step. Don't worry about your eighth step right now. Just keep staying sober one day at a time, and you will get enough mental clarity and with your sponsor be able to, to work on it. Um, but it sounds like you're being honest with yourself that you can't sleep with her yet. The program's just about being honest with yourself. And it sounds like you know you, it would be too much for you right now. I had to make it my, a bottom look. The definition of sobriety wasn't enough for me, from SA. I had to make it more strict for me because I was abusing my wife through uh, unbelievable frequency. And I had to include certain frequency that if it ever was that, it would be a loss of my bottom line sobriety. Um, I had to treat lust in marriage just like any other lust. So I included that on my bottom line sobriety. And um, uh, part of my not that it happens that frequency, even close to it, but if I ever had sex twice in a day with my wife, too, uh, it, that would be a loss of my total sobriety. Now, that's me. Other people don't have to do that. But this, the sobriety definition wasn't strong enough for me. I needed a stricter definition. My sobriety definition includes, don't forget, I came in before computers. I used to go to pornography stores for anonymous sex. If I step foot in a pornography store, just step in it, it's a loss of my bottom line sobriety. Unless someone's stuck in it, from in the program, and I call someone else and say, "Hey, we got to drag this guy out." <laughs> if I purposefully go to a public shower room where other men are showering and they're nude, and I go in on purpose for any other reason other than nowhere, anywhere is there a bathroom. That is the loss of my bottom line sobriety. I wish people luck for the looseness of their sobriety definition. This in this program, you could get away with all kinds of things. You could be a voyeur and fool yourself and stand in front of a window 
and watch a woman get undressed or a man get aroused and say you're sober this you haven't had an orgasm or you hadn't touched it with your hand and say I'm sober. Well, I wish you all well. I can't afford that. I'm too ill. So I needed much stronger boundaries than some of the vagueness of the program. And as you know, I asked Roy a few years before he died. I said, Roy, why is the definition of marriage so clear, but the definition of sex with self is so vague? And he shocked me. He said, because it's not a religion. You cannot dot every I. So I can't tell you you're not sober. But I could tell me by making clear boundaries for myself. But that's off the eighth and ninth step. Okay. Um, go ahead, Carrie. Harry? Yes, yeah. hello. Um, Harvey, you spoke about um, uh, your mother, and I think a lot of people have uh, difficulties with, with their mother from childhood um, or their father. And if they're, my mother's gonna, is, is on my, will be on my list uh, for the eighth, eighth step. My difficulty is that uh, for forgiveness, um, how do you deal with somebody who, still does the same things, even if I'm 43 and she's 73, how do you, how do you forgive somebody that continues to uh, do the same emotional abuse um, now that she did when you're a child? Yeah, I had to learn tools. Uh, I had to learn I could not, I, my mother moved to our city and uh, she got paralyzed on half her side and uh, I'd go visit her once a week at least, but I would never stay for more than an hour. This, my mother couldn't control herself for more than an hour. She would start the abuse verbally. It got to a point where she'd start the abuse to me and she was in a wheelchair and I would get out of my chair across the room and kiss her on the forehead and say, Mom, you must be very frightened right now the way you're talking to me. And I'd just kiss her on the forehead. And it would kind of change. See, she's never going, she was never going to change. I had to find tools. My mother thought I was so, worked too hard. 
because within 40, 45 minutes, I'd fall asleep sitting on the couch sitting with her. What was my defense mechanism? I never said to her, no, mom, I'm shutting you off. (laughs) She thought I was just tired and I fell asleep. I would also, when she started abusing me on the phone, I learned a method through SA. Actually, it was reverse. I learned it on her and then applied it in SA. Um, I would pull the phone away and not listen. And then every few moments, see if she take, took a breath. And if I heard she took a breath, I would say, yeah, and how's your sister doing, Mom? I'd change the subject. I needed a large toolbox from my sponsors, from other people. I came in the program, maybe I was 10 years old emotionally. Maybe. You, you wouldn't know it from the outside, but I, I had no tools, no adult tools I masturbated every feeling away, every fear, every tension. So I was totally an emotional cripple. And my sponsors and people in the program and at AA had to teach me tools, simple tools. And so over the years, I learned them. On, I kept, she was 89, and she kept going into congestive heart failure. I've told this story quite a bit. And she had a nurse, young nurse, who is in the SA program with me. We were friends, you know, we knew each other. She thought my mother was the greatest gal around. Yes, my mother did have two sides to her. Well, my mother kept going through congestive heart failure. She was 89. And this nurse, gal in the program, confronted me. She said, you're torturing your mother. You're not letting her die. You keep taking her to the hospital over and over to get her out of the heart failure. She said, You're keeping her alive so she'll become the mother you always wanted. Wow. Did that hit me in between the eyes? And so one morning, I'm at a 6.30 a.m. national meeting, SA meeting, and my wife runs in and says, they just called, well, back up the day before. I took her back to the hospital and my grandson and I visited her and she started abusing me. Unbelievable. Verbal. And I said to my grandson, let's go. And I stormed out of there. Didn't say a word. And I got to the elevator and I stopped. And I went back and I went and held her and told her I love her. 
and I left on a good note. Next morning, my wife comes to the meeting, drags me out. She said, your mother's at that. So I rushed to the hospital, and there she is sitting up in bed, drowning in her lung fluids, just drowning. And the nurses came, and I just said, make her as comfortable as possible. And I got in the bed with her, because I learned that in the program 20 years before. I got in the bed with her, and I held her, and I told her all the things I wish she could have told me in growing up, how she loved me and what a good guy I was. Instead, I told her how much I loved her and cared about her and made some more amends. And she died in my arms. A while after that, I learned from my wife a statement from Essanon. It's okay to love a sex addict. It's okay. It's okay for me to have loved a witch. My mother was a witch. She made trouble for everyone. She was, but I loved her. You can love a witch. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it with malice. I'm not feeling malice. She was not an easy person, probably as a borderline personality. And it kind of ran in her family. Well, what happened months later? was I was bad-mouthing her to my sponsor from AA. Don, he had about 57 years. Back then, he must have had about 50 years sobriety or something. He said, Harvey, I want to tell you a story. I heard this AA story where it said, the woman said, you know, sometimes when it comes to family you need to buy new suitcases, new luggage. <laughs> you got to let go of the old stories. And a week or two later, before we had the software we have now, I made a video of her life with the most beautiful music. And towards the end, in her gray hair, her holding one of the grandchildren, one of my grandchildren, with the music of a beautiful tune of my Yiddish mama, and people who aren't even of my religion will watch the video and start to cry. And I said, 50 years from now, they're going to see the mother. I always wanted, not the mother that I necessarily had. 
Now, I have this picture, even though it's not my God, as I but it's a picture of my God <laughs> in a picture, but it's not real for me. He sits there with all these bags of grace, all these gifts. Each bag is a different gift, and it gives everyone the equal amount of gifts, but they're different gifts. He did not give me the gift of great parents, but he gave me the gift of a wonderful wife. Oh, well, let's not get too serious here. <laughs> this is the most wonderful program in the world. Can you imagine if I had missed even one of those low-life things I did with the hundreds of people, men and women, and the abu frequency abuse to my wife and some of the damage of my kids having to be experienced a crazy alcoholic, sexaholic father. If I had missed even one of those things, I wouldn't have been ready to surrender and come in the program, and I would have missed this life. A spiritual way of life that we've been blessed with by having our disease. So when you all, which so many of you do, get pissed at God, how come you gave me this disease? It's because you don't sing Amazing Grace enough. You were blind and couldn't see. These are gifts he gave us, or we would have missed this program. And as my sponsor would say, this is there is no spiritual part to this program. It's a spiritual program. So naturally, forgiveness is going to be part of this for us, not for them. Can you imagine if I would have walked out of that hospital as angry as I felt and left and my mother would have been dead the next morning and my program had stopped me in my track and had me go back to the room. So we had a couple of questions that came in talking about, about disclosures, basically, which is the questions that always come up in step nine. I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll be something that we'll deal with more next week. Um, it's, a, it's always a hot topic once we start talking about step nine, the, the full disclosure, and might, next week might be really... I don't want to talk about full disclosure, Miss. It has nothing to do with 12-step recovery. It is a made-up issue by therapists. 
both our AA book and SA book strongly recommend the dangers of it and how careful you have to be and the amount of sobriety you need. And it's not bad and it's not good. It's just not 12 step. It's even the term is a relatively new term, full disclosure. My wife just laughs as an Essanon at her meetings. She says, full disclosure. Every three weeks, a woman comes back and says, my husband did another full disclosure. We don't, we don't even remember half the stuff we did until years into it. My God, sometimes I remember things a year ago or two years ago, a few months ago. I say, did I really do that? <laughs> and the damage it is potentially can cause my wife, or we should hear some of her Essanon ta talks on it. So the man tells his wife about his triggers of tall blondes with blue eyes who wear high heels and short skirts. The guy's in recovery. He's doing fine. The wife and he go into a restaurant, and the wife's casing the whole restaurant to make sure there are no Blonde women with short skirts and high heel shoes to make sure her husband will be okay. She's caught the disease. I've seen, I have no definite opinion of results because I've seen where it's helped, and where it's hurt. And I've not seen much disproportionate. You know, it's, I would say, 50-50 over the years. But it's not about us, and we are not, I don't tell people don't do it. I tell them my experience, strength, and hope, because it's about them and their therapists. And they're going to have to make a decision. And they're paying for a therapist. You go to a therapist. The therapist and you expect you to do what he suggests. A few years ago, we were in um, uh, Edmonton, Canada, doing a workshop. And my wife and I were in that giant mall just looking at it. And out of nowhere, I said to my wife, do you want to hear more of my story? She said, absolutely not. I have never told my wife my story. Now, my wife had to live my story, getting venereal diseases from me. A guy once came to our front door and said, 
Harvey's having an affair with me. And the sickness in my family, my wife said, you aren't the first and you won't be the last. That's how sick our family got prior to my coming into recovery. I'm telling you, if this program works for me, what my sponsor says, it will work for a dog hardly. This is such an important thing. Forget full disclosures now. People confuse this program. I will get calls about jobs, about financial stuff, about legal stuff, medical stuff, and I will tell the people this is not what this program's about. You call a lawyer. And don't get a freebie from someone in the program. You get someone with objectivity. And if you're having chest pain, don't ask your sponsor. Is this anxiety or not? You go to an emergency room and get checked. We addicts are here with one main characteristic, among other things. We have poor boundaries. As sex addicts, we had poor boundaries. And in recovery, we continue with poor boundaries. And it's one of the things we learn. We are not life managers in the program. We are sponsors. All we have is to share our experience, strength, and hope. We are not life managers. You want a life manager, go pay for one. They're trained to do it. We're just another drunk who shares their experience, strength, and hope. And addicts, because we have poor boundaries, tend to play one against the other. So they'll ask a few people in the program. They'll then call their um, therapist, get an opinion of the therapist. Um, They might ask a few ministers, a few rabbis the same question, possibly the imams. The addict Always the ego wants to stir a mud puddle. It lives in chaos. Our program is about surrender. You get a sponsor, and you if you ask him a question, you surrender to his answer. Or why have him as a sponsor? You're going to argue with him. Why have him as a sponsor? How do I know all this? This I screwed up so many times. I turned into a life manager. Turned into where my wife and I would see the husband and wife together and help. It quotes help. I've had to learn all this through the school of hard knocks. (laughs) 
So we have three questions in the oh, chat. Oh, other thing. Sponsors will have the boundaryless issue of telling someone, oh, if you're really in recovery, you shouldn't be taking medication. That sponsor has no place saying that. In my opinion, that is a medical decision. And people in the program, and if you're not careful on your sponsoring, sponsees always set us up. They're, our egos set our sponsors up. We tell them the rough part to convince them how bad our wives are or our bosses. I do not do that anymore with my sponsor. After the first few years, I tell them my side of the street, what I did, and if he wants to ask me more questions, he can. I give them no background because I am a class A manipulator and I will know how to manipulate you within moments. Shim, I wish I could take a photograph of your face right now. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel something coming through the screen. Would you like to share something that's concerning you or something by these statements? I I, I get into trouble when I don't even do things wrong. (laughs) No, you're not in trouble. I just love you and I'm feeling something. It makes me upset when people give advice that are outside issues. And people called me as recently as yesterday asking for outside issue advice. And I say, we're recovery friends and I don't have any experience, strength and hope on that. And then they get mad at me. <laughs> I, 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 uh, Harvey, my, my best thinking landed me uh, a little square on a screen listening to you talk. I got here with my good ideas. So um, <laughs> I don't like to give advice about um, about what I think. I just want to share what what worked what worked for me or what didn't work for me, and that's it. So I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Thank you. So we we have a couple of questions in the chat and a couple of uh, hands up. Um, Thank you. I put you on the spot, but. I'm glad you were able to share that with us. It gave me a break, too, for letting me come down a bit. Okay. Uh, the question, I made amends to someone, and he says he never wants to talk again to me in his life. I feel very rejected and hurt. Any feedback? Yeah, the inventory would be, when don't you feel rejected and hurt? Can anyone do anything that doesn't make you feel that way? Statistically, 
And something lately came up this past week, which I won't go into it, but it was a thing that happened at a meeting. And I always ask the same question. Look at the pattern. This, that's what my sponsor told me, that these are not character defects we're really interested in. We're interested in the patterns of the character defects. And I will feel rejected if you sneeze while I'm talking. Okay? Or if I'm in a good place that day, I won't feel rejected. Now, sure, it's going to hurt my ego when someone says, don't ever speak to me again about it. But I've had people in the program I've helped who've had rifles who wanted to kill me. They were threatening me. I've had people time and again in the program come up to tell me how much they hated me. Man. I'm still here. I don't see them hardly at all, occasionally. And so my sponsor helped me with the concept of my truth. Harvey, we addicts wear our feelings on our sleeve. We're hypersensitive. How important was that person to you? If it's at your boss, you're in trouble. <laughs> I'm being funny now, but yeah, it, sure, it hurts my ego. I want everyone to like me. But you know, my sponsor said, Harvey, if you give a talk and no one afterwards gets up to criticize something you said, you've been too careful in what you've shared. You're always going to upset someone. I'm kerosene. I'm gasoline waiting for a match. I'm anger waiting to find a place to put it on. Once I accepted that, it didn't control me any longer. That it wasn't you causing the anger. It was me that had the anger that focused it on you. How dare they do that? Not accept me. I was a sober, I guess, 20 years or so, and we were, I was doing a temporary job outside of town and of Nashville, and someone called and said, will you be in town for your birthday? I said, yeah. He said, will you speak? I said, sure. And he said, um, great, we'll give you 10 minutes. And I said, I can't give my name in 10 minutes. And I start arguing with the guy. I need more time. So I get off the phone. He said, well, I'll check it out. And I'll call you back. I get off the phone and my wife says to me, who was listening to the conversation, Harvey, didn't he know who you were? 
The minute she said that, I called him back. And I said, I'm not well enough to speak this year. And I didn't speak in Nashville for my birthday. I wasn't well enough. That's the beauty of the program and how God uses everyone to speak through. That time it happened to be through my wife. It doesn't happen too often, but that time it was. No, I'm making a joke. Hi, Sona. <laughs> Good to see you. Um, the, the next question was about forgiveness. What is the ultimate state of forgiveness that we're striving for here? I don't understand. The, I don't know the word ultimate. I'm not being facetious. It's a word that's never crossed my mind. That's a lot of pressure, aiming for the ultimate. Who defines ultimate? I hope I never get to the ultimate. That would mean I don't, I'll have no more growth, no more spiritual awakenings. Maybe death does it. But in this life, I hope I don't ever get to the word ultimate. God, it's like, what is God's ultimate ability to love us? My God, it's infinite. The closest I've had to that answer about God's love is someone in AA said, there is nothing you could do to make God stop loving you. Nothing. Wow. Just my opinion. Don't talk for essay. Next question. Dylan, go ahead. Bill and Sexaholic, uh, thank you, Harvey, uh, for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's been really impactful for me. And thank you, Daniel, for uh, putting this up and all the recordings. Uh, I just had a question about uh, the ninth step and making uh, direct amends. Do you recommend a specific length of sobriety before making uh, direct amends? No, I think that's totally up between you and your sponsor. But, you know, Dr. Bob did it with one day. He went into his city town and made amends to all these people. So I don't have an opinion on that. But you really want to be sober 
by the way, hopefully, if I don't bring it up, someone can remind me. Uh, you try not making sexual amends. It's too dangerous to see a person you were involved with to go to them to make an amend. And um, I did it through a telephone call and really harmed the person. I learned the hard way. I needed to check with my sponsor first. But I make no, um, not my greatest amends to the people, to the to the many people I had sex with was I don't do it today and I don't want to do it today, even if the opportunity arises. And if you've ever asked yourself this question, if you haven't, do it. It's a fun question. Harvey, what if the most beautiful woman or the most handsome guy came up to you today and said, no one will know. I want to have sex with you today. Let's have sex. What would you do? It's one of my most freeing questions I had to ask myself years ago or whenever. The most freeing thing I do is what are you doing? when it's impossible for anyone to know what you've done or what you've thought. What do you do when you're totally by yourself? For me, that's the test of my program. And it doesn't mean I'm failing. You don't fail or pass in this program. But it means if I can't answer it, then I have room for working my steps on it. What's the block? Next question. Okay, there was a question, uh, I'll just to add to what you said, also as my sponsor always says in your name, you also don't make amends to people that you got drunk with. Yeah. Um, the next question was just someone who wanted a bit more, to hear a bit more ESH about uh, you making amends to your sons something we never really heard about much before. One son, my oldest, doesn't want me to even mention I'm in the program. One son, uh, I've made amends to all of them, generally. But the sexual amends I've made over the years in different stages, like one of my sons who was still living at home was, I abused you. I ask your forgiveness, make an amend. I abused you by letting people live in our house who were not safe people. Uh, 
um, my, I guess a living amend is I, they know I'm in the program. They know I travel all over the world before COVID to give talks. My daughter-in-laws refer us people who are having trouble. One son, some of his best friends ended up in the program with me. Um, to the When I want to make another amend, I say, you know, to my sons a lot of times, hey, I need to make an amend. A lot of times they'll say, Dad, you've made so many amends to us, it's enough. See, that's my problem, not theirs. That I'm not feeling I've cleaned it out enough. Apparently for them it's okay. I want to tell you this story that most of you have heard. My son brought home this gorgeous woman. And, um, you know, he's a short guy, not that fantastic looking guy, but he get every tall, gorgeous blonde you could imagine <laughs> would be a head taller than him. And he brought one of these home and we're sitting comfortably in our den. And he looks at me in front of her and he says, Dad, why are you in SA? Why are you in Sexaholics Anonymous? And I said, son, you want me to say it to you in front of your daughter, or your girlfriend? And he said, yes. And my wife was there and she was getting edgy and I was feeling uncomfortable. And I said, okay, I'll go up and get the brochure. Because that's how I would tell my children. I'd read them the problem from the essay brochure to tell them about me. And he'd say, uh, he said, no, I want to hear it from you, not you read it to us. And I was frozen. And all of a sudden, I stopped and I prayed. I said, God talked for me, and I said, my qualifier with the little addition, I said, I believe I have a disease that I was born with, and I was a compulsive masturbator. Uh, I was abusive to your mother in frequency in sex. And I was uh, highly promiscuous, including men, predominantly men. And there was dead silence in the room, dead silence. You could hear a pin drop. And I said, is there anything else you want to ask me? I'm not sure I'll answer it, but you could ask and all of a sudden, this grown man, he was in his 30s, in front of his girlfriend, started to cry and said, Dad, <clears throat> I want to tell you how proud I am of what you've done with your life. 
he was a kid who lived in the house during the worst part of my addiction. A year later, we were walking down the street on a vacation on, on Broadway with him and my wife. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a year later, he said, did you have sex with this guy and this guy? He started naming these men. And after a few guys he mentioned, I looked at him and I said, son, this is getting a little too much for me right now. I'd rather you not ask me any more questions. See, that's a simple truth. And as we've talked in the past about the simple truth. Now, what happened because of all this was maybe a decade later, we were in the parking lot with his, he and I, we were naming his first child, who was married. And in the parking lot, he looks at me and he says, Dad, I want to tell you something. A woman I used to date found me on Facebook and I went to visit her last week. And I looked him in the eye and I said, son, you've already had sex with her, haven't you? And he said, yes. And I gave him an essay test. He wasn't a sexaholic. Turned out he was married to a woman who was sex texting for a year. And he knew about it and he didn't was ashamed to tell anyone. She would tell him how inadequate he was in lovemaking, all kinds of terrible things that she'd say to him. And um, uh, he had an affair with this other woman. He ultimately, I supported him for, during this period of helping him. He divorced this, his wife. He's been married now at least 10 years, I would imagine, if not more, to his second wife. Not having affairs, to the best of my knowledge. But what happened was, I believe, my being honest with him and telling him the simple truth and living amends of staying sober for them. Not for them, for me, but they were recipients. Um, he felt close enough to me to share with me finally what he was going through. His wife knows I'm in the program. When she gets upset about my son, she calls me for help. None of my daughter-in-laws have ever given me a problem. One daughter-in-law said to me, are you going to be safe with my children? And I was able to say yes. Children weren't one of my things, but, you know, I was able to say yes. And there was never another question, and we helped raise those kids.
The shame is in our minds, not their minds. My AA sponsor would say he never had anyone lose respect for his recovery, but he had many people lose respect for his active addiction. With respect for it. Now, if you're drunk out of your head and you happen not to be acting out, but you've been lusting all day, don't fool yourself. People will not feel safe with you. They will feel it. During my first few years after my abstinence period and all, that lasted quite a while. I would ask my wife for sex and she'd say, I see it in your eyes. I knew you were going to ask. Yeah, I get some luck. Nowadays, I got blind in my right eye, my right eye about 19 years ago, 20 years ago. And I'll go up to her and I'll say, honey, can you see it in my one good eye? Do you see it? That I'd like to have sex. <laughs> we make a joke about it. And as you all know, I've told you this story after I went blind in one eye. And it came to an SA meeting. The guy said, see, they were right. What happens from masturbation? You go blind. <laughs> the old wives' tale. If you don't get a sense of humor, you'll cry. <laughs> We're going to kind of end pretty soon. One more question. Yeah, last question from Paul. Go ahead, Paul. Wait very patiently. Yes, thank you. Uh, um, yeah, thank you. I've been on. I've been on for a while. I paid attention the first hour totally, but then I had to do some stuff, but I wanted to stay in, so I apologize if you answered this question already. Um, I wanted to ask if it, uh, you're, if it would be okay to make amends to a woman or a, a woman or a couple of women who I used about 20 years ago but they might not know that I use them, but I feel very bad about it. I've never made amends to them before. I was wondering if you had any experience, strength, and hope on that. Yeah, ask your sponsor about it. But you're going to, there's a great chance you're going to harm them. If you go up to them and say, I asked your forgiveness, I was wrong for using you. It could harm someone to know they were used and not really cared about. So that type of amends sometimes falls into dumping rather than sharing. And men okay. do have a lot of women with their husbands or wives. They think they're sharing, but they're really dumping. They're trying to get their crap off of them by putting it on someone else. But I wouldn't have enough details. I don't know enough about it. That's yeah, yeah. with your sponsor on. 
do you ever make amends to people that you were physically involved with? Well, I made one without checking with my sponsor early on. It was a terrible mistake. I did it through the phone. Uh, but other than that, I've made amends to my um, cousin and I had long-term incest together. And um, I asked my sponsor, he was traveling into our city, and he came by to stay with us. And I called Jess up to say, and he said, um, make a general amend. And if he wants to go into it more, you can. And I said to his name was Mitchell, Mickey, uh, Mickey, I want to make an amend and ask your forgiveness for any harm I caused you while we were growing up. Now, he, he probably was the one abusing me, but regardless, I was still participant of it over years and then got hooked on it myself. But he then said, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, this is a guy we had fooled around for years, you know, teenage years. He said, oh, do you mean when your cousin Rhoda and I, when we were little, little kids, used to tickle each other's back, scratch each other's back? And I knew, Harvey, you're going to harm him if you say anything else. He doesn't want to deal with it. He happened to have been an obscene phone caller in our family. But I did not do anything further than that. Well, thank you very much. I will. I, you know what? I asked my sponsor the other day. I didn't like his answer, so that's why I was asking you. <laughs> I'll listen to my sponsor. Thank you. You're welcome. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Uh-huh.